Today's reading is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 1510. It'll be up on the screen and it's also in your pew sheets as well. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when, he is, when, God, when, when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learnt obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alan. G'day, everyone. It's great to be with you. My name's Sam. I'm one of the, the ministers here. I lead our uh, uni church congregation that meets on Sunday evenings. Uh, and with my wife and daughters, we're part of this congregation as well. It's a joy to be leading you through this part of God's word this morning. Uh, when we heard from Karen and Alex, they, they kind of um, helped us to start preparing our hearts for what I think God wants to do through this part of his word for us. And particularly, as Karen read from the introduction to the book, we started to see what part of human experience, what part of life is really in view in this passage for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. I think the big question of this passage, or the big thing for us to, to think through, to be comforted in, is the question of how does our sin affect our relationship with God once we're saved? How do we come to God as Christians when we've stuffed up? What impact does our sin have on our relationship with God? Now, we, we probably kind of know the, the, the experience of this question, right? How, how do you think about yourself and about God when you're hyper-aware of your own sin? Maybe what you do, and this is something that I've done uh, often in my life, is 
just avoided God for a little while until you feel like whatever that sin is, is distant enough or far enough in the rearview mirror that you can come back to God again and not have to talk about it. Or maybe a different kind of response. Maybe your prayer life becomes fixated on that sin that you're all too aware of, that you're battling with, and you, you can't bring other requests or other parts of your life to him because of how much this sin is obscuring your vision. Well, the, the, the answer for that question and the kind of experience of that question that we find in our passage is that for those who are in Christ, your sin is no barrier between you and God. For those who are in Christ, your sin is no barrier between you and God. And so this is my deep hope, my deep prayer for us as we explore this passage, that, that we would believe, not just know in our heads, but believe and, and experience that our sin does not make, us, make God love us any less. That your sin does not stop God from listening to you. That your sin is no barrier between you and God. The author of Hebrews kind of gives us this point in verse 16. If you've got your Bible or you've got the, the new, new sheet there with you, have a look at verse 16. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So he wants, he wants them, God wants us to know that we can approach God with confidence because of Jesus. I, um, I wholeheartedly recommend, uh, kind of echo Karen's recommendation of, of Gentle and Lowly. Uh, this book's really ministered to my heart as well. And I'll even, I'll refer to that book a few times uh, throughout the sermon today. The author reflects at the start of the book that if a friend could come to you and help you to lay your ear on the chest of Christ so that you could hear his heartbeat, this is what you would hear that Hebrews 4.15 would be that friend, he says. He's saying that, that this passage, especially these, these short few verses from 14 to 16, perhaps as much as any other, is, is the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. There are many amazing insights from Scripture into the nature of God, but this, this passage, he suggests, reflects the heartbeat of Jesus for you. And so we're going to dig into three kind of key truths from these verses, and we're going to really just focus on 14 to 16. 5, 1 to 10 is kind of unpacking of the idea of Jesus as this great high priest, uh, which we'll explore in a moment. Um, so I'll refer to those verses as well, but mostly we're going to focus just on 14 to 16. So as you kind of read through, have those, those three verses, they're really, uh, I guess, in the forefront of your view. If you're a, um, a note-taker, these perhaps could be your headings. His work is for you, he's gone ahead of you, and his heart is for you. So first, let's talk about Jesus' work for, for you, for us, as our great high priest. 
Now, that, that word priest is one that we still use today, right? I'm an Anglican priest. Alex and Nat and John are Anglican priests. If somebody asks me at a party or something, I'm meeting kinder parents at the moment. That's part of my life. And they often ask me what I do. And if I say I'm a priest, there's usually one of two kind of responses to that. Either they apologize for swearing in front of me, which I find a bit strange, or they kind of lay out their religious resume for me. They say, oh, I went to a Catholic school, or my grandmother goes to an Anglican church, or something like that. People have these kind of, perhaps strange, instinctive responses when they realize that they're talking to a priest. Sadly, of course, many people in our culture hear the word priest now as a suspicious word because of things that priests have done. That, that's a very different kind of view of priests to the people who this passage was first written to. F- for them, in the world that they lived in, they'd grown up ethnically and, and religiously Jewish and had become believers in Jesus. For them, priests were a highly important part of their lives, their, their worship, their community, their identity. So I'll try to, I guess, help put us in the shoes of these ancient Israelite people, these Jews turned Christians, in their understanding of priests. And it matters because we, we approach the passage from quite a different position to them, right? What the author's trying to do here is say, you know what priests are like? Let me show you how that points to Jesus. Whereas us, 2,000 years and lots of thousands of kilometers away from that, we kind of have a better sense of who Jesus is and we kind of have to read it back the other way. Well, what we know about Jesus, how does that help us understand priests? But that's, that's different to what he's doing for them. So it helps us to understand a bit of how they understood priests. So let's imagine, let's do kind of a, a thought exercise, imagine together, that we are faithful, God-fearing, ancient Israelites. How do we approach God? How do we conduct our relationship with Yahweh, the God of our people? How do we interact with the one who, who made us and sustains us? Well, uh, when we can, we go to Jerusalem. We go to the temple. We walk, maybe for days, to get there. And we bring animals, we bring grain, oil, other things to sacrifice different amounts, different types of animals, depending on what we can afford whether we're rich or poor. And as we approach the temple, maybe this is the only time in the year that we come, right? This is a big moment for us. It's a big deal. As we approach the temple, it's loud, it's busy. There's the sound of different animals bleating. There's the sound of of lots of people. Uh, It smells like roasting meat. There's blood everywhere. And we approach this huge building that towers over Jerusalem, which is on a hill. It's a, it's a very kind of visual pinnacle of our, of our culture, of our worship. And so first we enter the outer courts. This is the kind of the, the furthest out bit of the temple. And ladies, this is as far as you can come in. Gentiles, this is as far as you can come in as well. If you're ceremonially unclean, this is as far as you can come in. Some of us can go in a little bit further. But while you're waiting out there in the outer courts, 
Uh, there's lots of stalls around. There's people selling food. There's people selling souvenirs. There's people selling animals that you can sacrifice. There's people exchanging currency. It's a really busy market kind of vibe out there in the courts as people wait. And so, so men, we can go a little bit further, but then we have to stop as well. And we, we give, hand over the sacrifices that we've brought to the priests who serve there in the temple. So we hand over our sacrifices to the priests. Uh, we, perhaps we, we pay money if we've needed to buy an animal when we get there. And they take our sacrifices to one of the altars, these big kind of tables where they slaughter the animal. It's, it's sacrificed there along with hundreds of others today. There's, there's piles of animal bodies around. And it's the same as every day. It's this constant abattoir, really, of sacrifices for sin, sacrifices for all parts of our life as a people of God, day after day, year after year. And beyond those altars where, where we can't go, maybe we can kind of look at it over the, across the, the courtyard, is the holy place. That's inside the really tall bit of the building, the main structure of the temple, and in there, there's some really sacred objects. There's, there's a lampstand, there's the altar of incense, there's a table for the bread of the presence. And us good Israelites, we, we will never see inside there. We know what's in there, we've been taught what's in that room, but we'll never get to see inside it. Behind those huge pillars and those huge carved doors, only the priests can go in there. And once a year, only once a year, one priest, the high priest, goes through the, most, the, the holy place and he goes up to the huge ornate curtain that's hanging at the back of that room. Behind that curtain is the most holy place. That's the place where God is. That's where God's very presence dwells. We know he's in there. And the curtain's got massive pictures of, of angels with flaming swords and all this garden imagery around them. It's, it's depicting the angels that barred Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. And so now on the curtain, they bar even the priests, they bar anyone else from entering into the place where God is. And so once every year, that one priest goes in there behind the curtain on behalf of all of us after an exhausting and elaborate process of ritual cleansing of himself and his family, making offerings and offerings and offerings for his own sin. And he goes in to the very presence of God on the Day of Atonement. He offers the blood of a bull for his own sin and that of his family. He offers the blood of a goat for the sins of the rest of us. And he burns altar. He burns incense on the altar that's in there. Famously, you might have heard this, he goes in with a rope tied around his ankle in case he hasn't been sufficiently purified from his sin or in case he does anything wrong in there and gets struck dead by the presence of God, we can pull him out. We don't want to have to leave the body until this time next year. What do you reckon that 
experience would be like? What would it feel like for that to be the way that we relate to God? You can only come anywhere near God through these layers of protection, right? These veils. Not protection for God, protection for us. Because if we get too close to Him, we'll die. As one of my kids' books puts it, because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. And don't get, don't get me wrong, right? This whole temple, this whole sacrificial system is an act of God's grace. This is God's kindness to his people. He doesn't have to give them this, right? He's not obliged to make any way for them to relate to him. Not at all. This is grace. This temple is an echo of Eden, which is an echo of heaven itself. But it's veiled. And it's into that world, into that city, even into that very place that Jesus enters. Right? The Word became flesh, God became human. Jesus lived as one of us. And then he brought the ultimate sacrifice of his own body, his own life, not a bull or a goat. He himself becoming both the priest and the sacrifice. See, Jesus' ministry was a priestly ministry. In his, in his life, in his time on earth, he did priestly things, right? What did he do? He, he forgave people's sins. He cleansed people who were unclean so that they could go to the temple and worship God. He taught people about right worship of God. Jesus did heaps of priestly stuff. But unlike other priests, even unlike that once a year high priest, Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. It's there in verse 15 of chapter 4. He did not sin, which means he is uniquely suitable to be our high priest because he's truly one of us, yet without sin. All right? Have a look at verse 15. Let's, let's read it together. Have a look kind of really closely here at what he's saying as we read it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. Now, that's, that's a double negative, right? So he's saying we do have a high priest who has sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Those two truths are why Jesus can be our great high priest. That's why he's the only one who can be our great high priest. That's what makes him uniquely suitable for this role. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Right, see, Jesus is not Zeus. He's not this powerful, overall, but kind of distant and unrelatable God in the sky. That's not Jesus, he's not Zeus. And he's not Superman either, right, living among us, but too different to us to really be 
one of us. Jesus is not Zeus. He's not Superman. No, he came truly human to live among truly humans. He knows what it is to be tired, to be hungry, to be lonely, to grieve. He knows what it is to be abandoned by the people he loves the most. He knows what it is to be homeless. He knows what it is to be tempted by sin. Whatever temptation you have experienced, so has he. And that's, that's really important. That's really important because sometimes I think, I've certainly fallen into this trap, maybe, maybe you have as well. We think that Jesus can't really understand us because he hasn't sinned, right? So there's parts of our experience that he couldn't get. But imagine your fight against sin is like a swim across a, a wide and fast river. Sometimes you make it a little way, sometimes you make it a bit further, but you, you never make it to the other side of the river. Eventually, you give in to that temptation to sin. Jesus is the only one who has swum the whole width of the river. And that makes him the only one who can truly understand the temptation of sin. Right? He's the only one who can truly understand the full force of that river because he's swum further than we have. Or imagine, imagine uh, weightlifting. Right? Which, which weightlifter better knows the full burden of the weight that they're lifting? The one who can get it up to their knees or maybe to their chest before dropping it? Or the one who can lift the weight above their head and hold it? Right? Jesus is the one who's gone further than us in the fight against the temptation of sin. And so he understands our experience even beyond what we do. He's fought the, the, the fullness, the kind of consummation of sin's temptation and overcome it in a way that we never can. C.S. Lewis uh, reflects on this point. He says, we all give in to sin before it reaches its full force. But Jesus, in never giving in, experiences the full force of every temptation. So, so hear this. Here's, here's what that means for us, right? Jesus knows your temptation. He knows your temptation in its fullness. If you are fighting what feels like a losing battle with lust... Know that Jesus has fought that battle too. He's fought it beyond what you have, and he's won. He's experienced that like you have, but never indulged it. He never gave in. He crossed the whole river, and so he can truly sympathize with you. If you're struggling with, with bitterness, resentment, hatred, envy, he felt and he fought those temptations. If you find yourself tempted to please people instead of God, so has Jesus. No exceptions. 
If you're same-sex attracted, you're not an exception. Jesus felt the temptation of lust. He felt the temptation to bitterness. He felt the temptation to question God's goodness and love for him, all of it. He felt it beyond your experience and he never gave in. He gets you. And that's why he can truly represent you before God as your priest because of his own perfect sacrifice. So that's, that's Jesus' work for you, right? It's huge what he has done for us. And that work is, is applied to us, or it's kind of made effective, it's put into practice for us because of that, that second truth that we see here, that he has gone ahead of you. So have a look back at verse 14 again with me. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, that's kind of as far as we've got so far, right? He's our great high priest. We're getting a bit of a sense of what that means. A great high priest who has ascended into heaven. He's ascended into heaven. So remember the temple, that structure that we came to as, as Israelites before, that place, that process is an echo of heaven itself. It's a copy, it's a shadow of heaven. The place where God lives with his people. And Jesus, our great high priest, he has entered the most holy place, the place where God is, to give us access, to take us in as well. Jesus, he, he comes out to the outer courts with the Gentiles, with the women, with the ceremonially unclean. He takes us by the hand. He leads us through the holy place into the very presence of God because he's ascended. He's gone ahead of us. He brings us into the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he says, Father, this is Sam. He's with me. He's with us. That's what he does for us. Remember what happens at Jesus' death? That's in Mark 15. That curtain with the angels and their flaming swords keeping us out, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. The way is opened for us to be with God again. There's no more barrier. Sin is no more a barrier between us and God. Jesus rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He went ahead of us, right? In his words, to prepare a place for us there. Yes, to get heaven ready for us. And he's, he's there right now. He's there this morning, interceding with God for us, making a place for us to be with him. A.W. Tozer just says it very simply. He says, Jesus is our man in heaven. He represents us before God. And so this is, this is why you don't need 
a human priest or anyone else to give you access to God, to, to convince God to hear your prayers, right? Like, like we said before, I'm, I'm a priest, Alex and Nat and John are, are priests. We still use this word in, in the sense of being someone who serves God and, and His people, but you don't need any of us to speak to God or to know that He hears you. You've got Jesus. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence because you have a better priest and he is sitting next to God the Father in heaven, leaning across, speaking to the Father on your behalf. You don't need to pray to saints or to Mary. You don't need a guru. You don't need ancestor spirits. You have a man in heaven who brings your prayers to the Father. One, one old Puritan author called William Bridge, he wrote that it's like a child going out into the field to pick a bouquet of flowers for their father, but they mix in weeds and thistles with the flowers that they pick. But the, the child first brings the bouquet to their mother, and she gently picks out the weeds and thistles, arranges the flowers, ties a ribbon around them and hands them back to the child to present to their father. That's what Jesus does. He takes your, your fumbling, messy, sometimes selfish, sometimes defeated prayers, and he presents them to the father. Beautiful, perfect, good, who loves to hear your prayers. So we've been dealing with kind of, I guess, theological truths here, right? But how should this land in our hearts? What difference should this make to us? What difference does this make to us in our experience as believers in Jesus? Well, remember uh, the, the, the comment from Gentle and Lowly that these verses are like the heartbeat of Jesus. God put this passage in the Bible so that we might approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's why it's here. This is here so that you would know that your sin is no barrier between you and God and so that you would not just know that but feel that deep in your being. So for our, our kind of final section, let's talk about Jesus' heart for you. How does Jesus feel about your sin? How, how might you answer that question? How does Jesus feel about your sin? When you sin, what's Jesus' emotional response? If you're anything like me, maybe anything like a lot of us, your tendency might be to think that when we sin, Jesus is disappointed in us. That he's frustrated with us. That he's fed up with my inability to just leave this sin behind. After all, that's how I feel about my sin, right? 
But Christ's heart isn't like that. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. The old King James Version of the Bible translated that word weaknesses as infirmities. It's it's our suffering, our limitations, and includes our sin as well. Jesus sympathises with our weaknesses. He sympathises with our sin. What does that mean? How can he sympathise with our sin when he hasn't sinned? Well, there's a really helpful illustration that's often used to help us kind of get this. Maybe we've got any uh, physics professors or science teachers in the room who know anything about sympathetic resonance? Maybe. So sympathetic resonance occurs if you have two instruments, maybe like tuning forks or two pianos uh, in the same space as each other. If we had two pianos on the stage and I played a note on one, the corresponding string on the other piano will begin to vibrate in sympathetic resonance. So we get this sound that resounds between the two instruments. And in Christ, there is a sympathetic resonance between his heart and yours. So that when the the strings of your human nature are touched by temptation, his human nature resonates with you. He sympathizes with you, though he himself never sinned. He himself is not trapped in the hole of sin with us, right? He alone is the one who can pull us out. He is the only one who desires to climb in there with us, to be with us and help us, to bear our burdens for us. He's not disappointed in you. He is not fed up with you. He is not frustrated with you. His heart for you in your sin is not a heart of judgment or frustration or turning away. No, even in the very moments of your sin, his heart is for you, breaking with yours, longing with you to be free from sin. That's, that's what he was like on earth, wasn't it? We've, we've read the stories. We know what Jesus was like as he walked around. Never condemnation for the sinner, but grace and understanding, right? compassion and forgiveness. His heart is the same now. The first time, first time that my daughter had gastro, I sat with her in bed Right, as her little body kind of heaved and shook with fever and, and stroked her hair through her confusion and her pain, her fear about what was happening. What, what was my heart for her in her weakness? Love, overwhelming love, sympathy for her, hating the sickness, loving the child. 
That's God's heart for you in your sin. He knows how sin entangles you. He knows how it weighs you down. He knows your weakness. And his heart breaks for you. He hates the sin and he loves you. So, brothers and sisters, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. You can go beyond the curtain. You can be in the presence of God with confidence. Sin is not a barrier between you and God. If you were trapped in your sin, God does not love you any less. He does not listen to your prayers any less. He does not put you out in the outer courts. Because Jesus resonates with our weakness, we resonate with his strength. His strength becomes ours. His place in heaven becomes our place in heaven. Because he resonates with our sorrow, we resonate with his deep joy. Because he resonates with our sin, we resonate with his perfection. So bring your prayers to God with confidence. This morning, after our service, as we do every week, there will be people available to pray with you. Can I urge you to come forward for prayer? Whatever is on your heart, bring it to God. Your Father loves to listen to your prayers, like a father receiving flowers from his child. Let's start by doing that together now. Let's, let's pray. Let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. Let's pray. Jesus, our great high priest, thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for making a way for us to be with God. Thank you for bringing our prayers to God the Father in heaven. Thank you that as we pray now, you are presenting our very prayers to the Father. Thank you for your interceding work for us. We love you. We worship you, our great high priest. Amen. Uh, would you stand? We're going to sing.